you would, turn in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 16. As we come through Deuteronomy together, we land at chapter 16, verse 18 this morning. And God willing, we'll look to make it through chapter 17, verse 13. It's a sweet, sweet privilege to get to read God's word together. So let's call out to the Lord and ask him to give us hearts to tremble at his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And God, thank you for this, uh, this privilege, Lord, to sit here um, and open up your word and to hear it, to read it, to hear it, to meditate on it together. Thank you so much, Lord. God, we recognize that Unless you give us understanding, give us ears to hear and humble our hearts and cause us to be those that tremble at your word, unless you help us in those things, God, that um, even something as glorious as this can just, they can land on hard hearts. And I pray, God, that you would protect us from that as your people. We, Lord, we're, we are those whom you have redeemed and given new hearts. And so, Lord, I, pr I pray that you would put that on display, that you would put that on display this morning as our hearts are humbled before your word. Thank you, Lord. We commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody get your eyes on Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18. Hear God's word. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice, and only justice you shall follow, <clears throat> that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not plant any trees as an asherah beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make. You shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any, de any defect, whatever. For that is an abomination to the Lord your God. If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven which I have forbidden and it is told you and you hear of it then you shall inquire diligently and if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. 
If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, or one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is, so, that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose. And you shall come to the Levitical priest and to the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you, according to the instructions that they give you. And according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. And all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. This is God's word. Let me say a little bit about the plain sense and the structure of this passage. Plain sense here, there's instructions about appointing judges in Israel that will uphold justice. It's basically what this passage is about. The structure here the beginning and the end of what we just read are instructions about judges. It's instruction about judicial proceedings in Israel. So just, just want you to notice that it's at the beginning and the end. It's on both sides of what we just read. We started in 1618, which says, You shall appoint judges. And it goes on to say they should judge righteously and how, that these, how these judges should conduct themselves. That's in verses 18 through 20. Okay? Then you go to the end of our passage, the last section of our passage, chapter 17, verse 8. If any case arises, and he mentions homicide, assault, or any kind of right, just some kind of difficult case, look at it. If any case arises within your towns is too difficult for you, then you shall rise and go up to the place that I appoint. In other words, the beginning of our passage is appoint judges in your towns, Israel, in your towns that will uphold justice. And at the end of our passage, if some case comes up that's too difficult for you, there's this thing that God has set up in Israel where there's a higher court and take it to the place that God has appointed and to the judge who is in office at that time. So our passage begins and ends with judges being called to uphold justice in Israel. Now, in between... The beginning and the end here, this is about judges. We get a few examples of laws that these judges must uphold. Now, there's a whole, you know, there's, there's, just, there's a, just almost an uncountable amount of laws you could have mentioned, right? Of, of, uh, of things that could be said right here. Uh, in fact, uh, murder is mentioned. We, said, we read that just a moment ago. Assault is mentioned. There's things that are mentioned. But I want you to notice in chapter 16, verse 21, okay? to chapter uh, 17, verse 7, what kind of laws, if you just glance at it there, what kind of laws are mentioned that these judges are meant to uphold? And it's interesting, you can put them basically into two categories. One category is how God ought to be worshipped. That's one set of laws, so look at it in 1621. You shall not plant any tree as an asher beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make, and you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. So what is he saying here? He's, it's laws about how God is worshipped. Be gone with this syncretism. Don't bring this, this, uh, the way that the pagans worship their false gods. Don't bring that into the, into the, uh, to the place that God will choose. Don't bring that there. Don't bring the Asherah. Don't bring this pole that you set up. Don't do that. And in fact, when you worship God with sacrifices, don't bring one with a defect or with a blemish. So there's laws here about how God is to be worshipped, and it's very serious. 
And then we see in verses 2 through 7, chapter 17, verse 2 through 7, is what to do if an Israelite worships a false god. If you look at it in verse 2, if there's found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you a man or woman who does what's evil in the sight of the Lord. And it goes on to say he transgresses the covenant and he serves and worships other gods. And what we find out is after careful diligent search and making sure you know for certain there's a word here certain that that's happened by the evidence of witnesses and if it's true that this thing has happened the penalty is the death penalty it's very very serious here it says you shall stone him to death with stones so it's interesting you've got on both sides of this passage um, appoint judges that are going to uphold justice And in between, we've got these examples of upholding justice, or these examples of laws these judges should uphold. And they're very Godward laws. They're laws about how God God is to be worshipped and what to do if an Israelite, not necessarily a pagan somewhere else, but an Israelite in covenant with God, if they begin to serve other gods. Now, if if you were an Israelite, and you were living under these laws, and, and these laws were being obeyed, and these judges were appointed, and they were doing their job, what would, what would life be like as an Israelite if these things were actually obeyed? And I'll just mention a few things quickly. Righteousness would prevail. There would be justice in the land. The guilty would be held, held accountable and punished. The innocent, according to what we just read, would be protected. You would not be a, a victim of partiality or, or of bribery by your government. Nobody would feel like they could come and, and they could harm you because they're going to be okay because of some sort of uh, uh, prejudice from the government that favors them or, or they can harm you and then offer some money to get out of punishment. Nobody would feel like they could do that. So you wouldn't be a victim of bribery and partiality within the governing authorities. True worship of the one true God would be preserved under law, at least as best the law can do. You would be protected from false accusations as an Israelite under this. Um, uh, if, if an accusation comes, we just read it, it says carefully or diligently inquire into these things. Make for certain. There's got to be witnesses. Do not condemn somebody based off of one witness is what we just read. So you're protected from accusations. You would, you would benefit from the accountability, the, the accountability and the support that a local government would have from a higher authority or a higher government. So in summary, in summary, if these instructions are, are obeyed, there would be much benefit in society, much benefit in the nation. So I hope you understand the plain sense of what's here. Just the plain sense of what's here. Now what I want to do is I want us to to ask what can we learn from these instructions? What do these instructions teach us about? And I want us to talk about five different categories. What do these instructions teach us about? And I want to mention five different categories starting with the nature of God. So what are these instructions that we just read What do they teach us about the nature of God? They teach us that God is a God of justice. God is a God of justice. I hope you can see that in what we just read. The word justice is repeated throughout our passage. There's other places in the Bible like Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, that says this. The Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. I wonder if you expected mercy and justice to go together like that. He waits to be merciful to you for he is a God of justice. Now we hear something like that also in Deuteronomy 10 earlier in this book. Verse 17 says this. The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. The great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. That sound familiar? 
God is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. When you think about the God of justice, I wonder if you think about things like that. He executes justice for the fatherless, the widow, loves the sojourner, giving them food and clothing. And we see the same thing in our passage here. So, so if you're there, chapter 16, look at our passage. Let's, let's look at verse 19 again. This is what he commands the judges that are to be appointed in Israel. He says, verse 19, you shall not pervert justice. I'm a God of justice. Don't pervert it. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise, subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow. It's literally there. Justice, justice you shall follow for emphasis. You, you should follow justice that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Our God's a God of justice, our God that hates evil, a God that hates injustice, and a God that loves righteousness. This passage teaches us that God hates it when the innocent are falsely accused. He hates it when the weak are not protected. He hates it when murder or assault goes unpunished. We see that in 17 verse 8. He hates it when his people offer up false worship to him or go serve other gods. He hates this stuff. Chapter 16, verse 22 in our passage, it says, These are things which the Lord your God hates. Chapter 7, verse 1 calls it an abomination. He hates this, this stuff. But he loves it. He's a God of justice. He loves it when the righteous and just standard of his law is upheld. This is a major reason that Christ Jesus was sent into the world. I mean, starting way back at the beginning of Genesis, we were told about one that was going to come. If you're reading your Bible right, you understand one's coming, one's coming. And, and, and a major reason given for his coming is to establish justice. I want to read Isaiah 9 to you. It's a very familiar verse to you. I know it. But I wonder if you caught the emphasis on justice. Listen to Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Man, that's familiar to you, isn't it? A child is coming. A son is coming. A male child's coming. He's going to be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But do you know this part? Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. It's a reason for Christ's coming. He's a God of justice, and Christ comes to establish justice. We see this also in Isaiah 42, verse 1. Again, familiar verses about the Christ, but have you noticed this emphasis on justice? Behold, my servant whom I've chosen, and whom my soul delights, I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Imagine it. Imagine it. A world where every wrong is made right. Every injustice made right. And Christ comes for it because our God is a God of justice. Now number two, number two, what is, 
what do these instructions teach us about? Number two, the pursuit of justice. The pursuit of justice. And I mean God's people and their pursuit of justice. God's people are definitely called to pursue justice. Micah chapter 6 verse 8 says, what does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God? And it's obvious from this passage that God cares about the pursuit of justice among his people. What did we just read? Justice and only justice you shall do, he says. Now, when you think about us being a people or God's people being a people that pursue justice, what should come to your mind? We're people that pursue justice. What should you be thinking about when you think about that? Well, what does this passage say? This, this passage tells us things like judges that are judging righteously. This passage tells us things like uh, the protection of the innocent or the just punishment of the wicked or protection from homicide, protection from assault. or It says here, protecting people's rights in chapter 17, verse 8. Should remind you of many other verses in the Bible like, like uh, Proverbs 31, verse 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth Judge righteously and, and defend the rights of the poor and the needy. So our passage reminds us of things like this. P pursue justice? Okay, that's some insight there. What does Isaiah 117 tell us? Listen to this. Learn to do good. Seek justice, he says. Seek justice. Keep listening. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. You get a feel for the kind of things when we seek justice or pursue it? There's a verse that tells us something about Job's life that I think is insightful. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Job would have been one of these men's, one of these, these kind of men like uh, are being described to us like, like a judge. He would have been one like this. And you know that because, and I'll, I'll read this to you if you can get there fast. Go ahead and go to Job 29. If not, you can just listen. Job 29 verse 7. When I went out to the gate of the city... When I prepared my seat in the square, he's describing this thing that he does. He's one of these leaders in the land. He's, he's sort of like one of these judges. I went out to the gate of the city. I went and pre prepared my seat in the square. And I, want, and I want you to see a description of this man's pursuit of justice. Starting in verse 11. When the ear heard... It called me blessed, and when the eyes saw, saw it approved, because, listen to this man's life and be challenged. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me, my justice was like a robe and a turban. His justice is like a robe. Here's this description. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I searched out the cause of him who did not, whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. You see, almost like a positive and this Negative pursuit of justice in the life of Job. Positively, I was eyes to the blind. I was feet to the lame. I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. Negatively, I broke the fangs of the wicked and plucked the victim from his teeth. Therefore, seek justice. As Isaiah says, Isaiah 117, as Job's life teaches us, and as our passage today in Deuteronomy instructs us, justice and only justice you shall follow 
you shall pursue. Now, in saying that, I want to give a warning here. Let me give a warning here concerning your pursuit of justice. Beware, brothers and sisters, beware of an understanding of justice that's rooted in man's wisdom. Beware of an understanding of justice that's rooted in the wisdom of men. Now, these men in our passage, these, these judges, they were called to up, uphold justice. Clearly, you see it, right? They're called to uphold justice. But from where will they get their standard of justice? Will, will they get their, their standard of justice? Will it come from just what seems right to them? And I hope you know the answer to that is no. Proverbs 14, 12 says there's a way that seems right to a man, but it leads to death. So it's not just what seems right must be just. Where do they get their standard from? Do they get it from the standards of the culture all around them? No. You don't have to be a student of history very long to know that the culture can be very wrong about what's just and what's unjust. So where do they get their standard from? They get their standard from the words of God, from the law of the Lord. So the expectation of these judges appointed Israel is that they would uphold justice. Where do they get their standard from to do that? From the law of the Lord. Now, why am I saying that? Well, let me, let me root this in something. This whole idea of appointing judges in the land, we can trace it all the way back to Exodus chapter 18. You remember that? I'm going to read something to you from there. In Exodus chapter 18, it's that situation where Moses is standing as the judge, and he's day and night got these cases coming before them. And Jethro comes and says, man, you're about to wear yourself out and everybody else around you. You've got to appoint some judges. And I want you to notice something from that passage. This is where it all began. In Exodus chapter 18, I'm going to begin in verse 15. Listen to this. Where does Moses get his standard from and therefore every judge that comes after him? And Moses said to his father-in-law, to Jethro, because the people come to me to inquire of God, when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another, I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' judge, what's his standard of judgment? The statutes of God and his laws, the written words of God. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice, and I'll give you some advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws. Moses, Moses, teach the people the statutes and the laws. Verse 21, moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, hate a bribe, sound familiar, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Where does the standard of justice that these men are to uphold Moses and all the judges that follow, where does the standard come from? It comes from the written word of God. It comes from his law. Not what you feel, not what seems right to you, not what the culture says or other people say or influential people, but what does God's word say? And his word is right. His law is always right. The law of the Lord must be our guidance in all matters of pursuing justice. Do not look to the secular world to get your ideas of justice. Listen to Proverbs 28, verse 5. Evil men do not understand justice. But those who seek the Lord understand it completely because the wisdom is found in Him and not in us. When we begin to lean on our own understanding, 
or we lean on the wisdom of men, we will be led down a path of destruction no matter how good our intentions for justice might be. And there's many examples of that. And you could, especially in the last several years, many examples of man's wisdom in this area of justice. But just give one that's super clear, I would think it's very clear, would be this idea you've probably heard of reproductive justice. You heard of that? This idea of reproductive justice, the right to an abortion. So um, imagine that. It's pulling at that sort of justice-like heartstrings of compassion for, for, for the woman in need, for this woman that's hurt, or maybe even horrific, wicked things like rape, whatever it is. And it pulls on that compassion, the justice-like compassion that should be there. But then in man's wisdom, the determination at the end is what? Therefore, this woman has a right to murder her baby through abortion. This is, the, this is the wickedness, the craziness that when you depend on your own wisdom, your own understanding and justice, it leads you to you need the light of God's word in all matters of justice. So without a doubt, we as the people of God should seek justice. But the warning is, the warning is if we lean on our own understanding, we will be left with a perverted view of justice. So this instruction teaches us some things about pursuing justice. Number three. Number three. These instructions in our passage, what do they teach us about the standards for governing authorities? The standards for governing authorities. Now, there are biblical standards for governing authorities. Governing authorities are not left to do as they please. The king of the universe requires some things of them. It requ he requires some qualities to be in them. Now, as we've already read in Exodus 18, they're to be established in the law of the Lord. They're to be able men who fear God. They're to, they're to be trustworthy men who hate bribes. We just read that in Exodus 18. Earlier in the book of Deuteronomy, if you remember... We read this. This gives us some light about governing authorities. Deuteronomy 1 verse 16 says, And I charged your judges at that time, Hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike you shall not be intimidated by anyone for the judgment's God's. In the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I'll hear it. Again, you see some similarities there, and that's exactly what we see in our passage. Chapter 16, look at verse 19 again. What is required for these governing authorities? Verse 19 says, You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You've seen the repetition, haven't you? Exodus 18, Deuteronomy chapter 10, Isaiah. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. So what must governing authorities be? Well, one thing, you have this general call to judge righteously and justice. But here we've got this command, no partiality. No partiality, not, not to anyone, to anyone. Proverbs 18 verse 5 says, it is, it is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. But listen to Leviticus 19.15. You shall not be partial to the poor, to anyone. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. In other words, what must governing authorities be? No man-pleasing. No man-pleasers here. Truth and righteousness must be the guide for the governing authorities. Man-pleasing because of prejudice or man-pleasing because you're intimidated, you're able to be intimidated, as Deuteronomy 1 said, they can't be. It disqualifies somebody from this position of governing authority. 
Their man-pleasing clouds their judgment. It makes them partial. Governing authorities must be men who value truth above man-pleasing and who cannot be intimidated away from upholding justice and truth. No partiality. It also says no bribery. No bribery. Proverbs 17, 23 says, The wicked accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the ways of justice. In other words, governing authorities cannot be lovers of money. If they're lovers of money, they'll be susceptible to perverting justice. They'll bend the truth because somebody might help them profit. They can't be lovers of money. They must be men of justice and righteousness and truth and immovable in that. No respecter of persons. Now, Grace Community Church, we try to make some application you may not expect, I don't know. These verses obviously should affect the way we as a church think about political leaders, should affect the way you vote, it should affect the way maybe you govern if we have any aspiring political leaders here, it should affect the way you govern. But I want to encourage you to let these verses shine light on that process of adding pastors to this church, of adding pastors to this church. Now, praise God that when it comes to adding pastors to Grace Community Church, we've got light from God's Word. 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, 1 Peter, 1 Peter 3, uh, 1 Peter 5, Acts chapter 20. We've got all this light from God's Word in the New Testament about adding pastors to a local church. But have you considered these Old Testament verses as helpful in determining who should govern the church and how the church should be governed. And I want to commend them to you. And here's one reason why I want to commend them to you. Because sadly, over, over the, the years uh, as a pastor, I've heard men, I've heard pastors, I've heard men who are pastors express hesitation and even sometimes unwillingness to speak certain truths or to preach certain things or to stand on certain standards of justice and righteousness and truth. I've seen them express hesitation to me about this stuff. And why? What's the reason they give for the hesitation? Well, so-and-so in the church would be upset if I preach that. Well, so-and-so family in the church, and man, they're really influential. So-and-so family in the church wouldn't like it if I preached that, if I said that. If I preached that or I held out that standard, it would mean I'd get fired and this is, my, this is my living. This is how I make a living here. And I've heard men say things like that. And I would say that feeling is not uncommon in the world that we live in. So Grace Community Church, I want to challenge you from these verses and thinking about who governs the local church. I want to challenge you not to let a man become pastor of this church who values anything above the truth. May the pastors of Grace Community Church be men who value truth more than man-pleasing, who love justice and truth more than money, who cannot be intimidated or silenced by influential men or by the fear of being fired. And as we're in this process of thinking through leadership in our in our local church i want to i want to commend these old testament passages to you number four what do these instructions in our passage teach us about church discipline what do they teach us about church discipline now by church discipline i'm i'm referring specifically to that act of the church in removing someone from its membership because of unrepentant sin. Many have called it excommunication from the church. Removing somebody from the membership of the church because of unrepentant sin. This, I'm talking about this act of church discipline. Now, you might say, what does this passage have to do with church discipline? Well, here's why I mention it. Jesus and the Apostle Paul in the New Testament quote our passage to teach 
to teach on church discipline. So remember, in our passage in Deuteronomy, we've got that phrase that there must be two or three witnesses. You cannot condemn some, someone based off of one witness. There must be witnesses. Well, Jesus uses that in Matthew chapter 18. You can go read it later, verses 15 through 20. And it's that passage about confronting somebody in their sin. If they don't hear you, take two or three witnesses. He's quoting from here. If you don't hear them, tell it to the church. If you don't hear the church, the church is supposed to remove this person. So Jesus is using Deuteronomy 15 and other passages like it to teach on church discipline. The Apostle Paul does the same thing. You go read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Go read it on your own. He's calling for the excommunication of someone from the church at Corinth because of open, public, wicked sin. And at the very end, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13, he quotes from Deuteronomy 15 and other verses like it. Here, excuse me, Deuteronomy 16, 17. Let me read you this verse. It's Deuteronomy 17, verse 7. It says, The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. So that phrase, you shall purge the evil from your midst, the Apostle Paul picks that up in 1 Corinthians 5 and uses that to teach one of the reasons for church discipline, for excommunication. Purge the evil from your midst. So, they're using it to teach on church discipline. Let's talk about it for just a minute. What can we learn from Deuteronomy 16 and 17 about church discipline? Well, first, don't miss the, the transition here from execution to excommunication. So in, in Deuteronomy 16 and 17, we're talking about execution for these crimes. In the New Testament church, we're talking about excommunication, not killing someone, but removing them from the church. Now, when we study, and I want you to think about this for just a minute, because here's, here's part of why that's important. When we study God's word on how, how God structured the government of Israel to be, to be governed, when we study that stuff, should we make application for human governments in our day and what we call our government to? Should we make application for our governments in the way God called Israel to be governed? And I think the answer is obviously yes, right? We've already talked about one, like the kind of the kind of judges or leaders, the, the, the character that should be there is what we should call our government to in the same way. So there are principles, many principles that can be taken away. But that elicits a question, doesn't it? I wonder if you know what the question is. And it, it, it should make you think of a question like this. Should then, should governments today give the death penalty for blasphemy or serving false gods? And I think the answer is clearly no, that we wouldn't call our government to that. And let me try to explain why. This is the way they're to function in Israel. Why? Because they're in a special covenant with God that's different from every other nation at that time and after. I want you to see it even mentions the covenant here in chapter Deuteronomy 17, look at verse 2. If there's found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you a man or a woman who does what's evil in the sight of the, Lord your, <clears throat> of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them. This is not about a pagan worshiping a false god and his nation therefore execute him. This is about they're in this special covenant with God and they walk away and serve other gods and the death penalty is called here. No other nation is in the same situation as this. And I want you to notice this, that when Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul grabs you shall purge the evil from among you. And he's grabbing from, from Deuteronomy 16 and 17 here. <clears throat> when he grabs that truth, how does he apply it? He makes application not by saying, and, and you go read 1 Corinthians 5, he does not say in application, this God, this sinner that's doing this thing, therefore tell the government to execute him. He doesn't say that. That's not the application. What application does he make? He says, church, 
remove him. There's a transition here from execution to excommunication. He, cha he charges the church to excommunicate the guilty one. So that's just something to get out of the way, but here's something that I think is important you need to understand. Don't miss then, with this, with this in view, with this, this, this grabbing Deuteronomy 16 and 17 about the death penalty and, and, and grabbing that and teaching about church discipline in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, don't miss the seriousness and the importance of church discipline in a local church. Church discipline, specifically excommunication, is the spiritual death penalty of the new covenant community of God. And if you think, if, when you say it that way, it sounds so serious, doesn't it? And that's because it is serious. It's very, very serious. It's not to be taken lightly. Notice, notice the carefulness in Deuteronomy 17. That, that if a charge comes in, it says, you shall inquire diligently. It says you shall make certain. It says you, you need to grab these witnesses, not just off of one witness, but grab witnesses. This is very, very serious. And, and, and Jesus calls us to that in Matthew 18, to the, to the same kind of carefulness and seriousness in church discipline. He says, go and get two or three other witnesses. Tell them, if you don't hear them, tell it to the church. It's very, very serious. And not only is church discipline to be taken seriously, and lived out carefully, but church discipline is not to be neglected. Albert Moeller, he calls the decline, the decline of church discipline in our day the most visible failure of the contemporary church. The most visible failure of the contemporary church. And you might think, well, what's the harm? Like if a church doesn't the church doesn't do this thing that we're instructed to, to do in 1 Corinthians 5, Matthew 18, and other places. What's the harm? And brothers and sisters, the harm is the purity of the church. The harm is the purity of the church. Twice in Deuteronomy 17, it says, remove, purge the evil from among you. Again, 1 Corinthians 5, remove that person walking under repentance and saying, why? Purge the evil from among you. When you think about church discipline, you should think about the restoration of that individual. This is love for that individual. Oh, another way, a, a last-ditch effort to call them to repentance. You should think of the restoration of that individual, but it's not all you should think about in church discipline. You should think about the purity of the church. 1 Corinthians 5, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Christians are to care deeply, deeply about the purity of the church for the glory of Christ. And this cannot be preserved without faithful church discipline. Now, last category, number five, last category. What do these instructions teach us about the gospel? What do these instructions teach us in Deuteronomy 16 and 17 about the gospel? Well, here we have a passage, as I said, about the God of justice. We see it in the way he instructs the judges of Israel. We've talked about applications of that pursuit of justice today. But did you notice, I'm, I, said it just, I said it at the very beginning of our time together, did you notice the Godwardness, the Godwardness of, of the standards being laid out in our passage. Did you notice that? Look, remember the examples in chapter 16, verse 21, to chapter 17, verse 7. What were the, what were the examples? You got, you've, you've got these standards for, for judges on both sides, and then what are the examples that are given in the middle? Don't bring an Asherah into the temple of the Lord. Don't, don't, bring, don't set up this false worship. Don't worship God like that. And then here's what you do when someone worships a false god. They walk away and serve other gods. So it's very Godward in this understanding of justice. And I highlight that. I believe most people, when they think about justice, it's very human on human, man on man. And we've got that. In fact, our passage mentions murder and assault, doesn't it? We saw that, but I don't want you to miss the Godwardness of God's standard of justice. The worst atrocities of injustice 
are not how humans have dealt with humans, but how humans have dealt with God. David picked this up. David, well, David lived out horrific injustice. You remember the example of taking a man's wife and then murdering that man. And then when he, but when he writes the psalm in Psalm 51, what does he say? He says, God against you and you only have I sinned. He recognized that vertical problem that he had done wicked injustice out this way. But man, the, the greatest atrocity was his injustice against God. To take a quote from John Piper, Christians care about all injustice, especially injustice against God. And here's why that's important for us to recognize. Because when you read those standards in, in chapter 16, verse 21, through chapter 17, verse 7, when you read those standards, those Godward standards, can you see in there the injustice of your own heart? Did you just think about others, or can you see the injustice of your own heart there? Have you served other gods? And I don't think anybody here would say no, but in case you would, I'd remind you, of that phrase in the New Testament that says, covetousness, which is idolatry. Ever wanted something? Desired something? And if you were honest with yourself, you want it more than you did God. You desired something and you desired it more than you did His Word. You desired it more than you did His presence. That's idolatry. That thing is a false God. Do you see yourself... In this passage, covetousness, which is idolatry. As God's image bearers, we, God has given us this longing for final justice to come. I mean, you can see it. You can see it in a child that cries, that's not fair. Where did he learn that? There's this longing for God's, as, as image bearers, we long for the final justice to be done. That we understand that in some ways. But because we're sinners, we're blind. We're blind to see that we have evil and injustice in our own hearts. In fact, it's the worst kind, the kind that's against God. One of the things that happens in the life of every single believer, every single person that becomes a Christian, this happens in their life. Holy Spirit conviction conviction that shows them this problem I was blind to see my own sin I was I, I hated injustice in the world but I was blind to see it in my own heart and Holy Spirit conviction comes in and opens your eyes to your own problem your own sin the injustice in your own heart what about the evil and, and, and injustice that's in you it's in me if the, just, if the just God is going to condemn all evil and all injustice will be dealt with, all wrong will be made right, what about the wrong in me? What about the injustice in me? I think about with this whole thought, I think often about Revelation 21 verse 8. And how do you read that verse? How do you read Revelation 21 verse 8? Listen. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. How do you read that? All wrongs will be made right. All injustice, liars and sexual immorality, all of it cast into the lake of fire. Praise the, the God of justice and righteousness. All wrongs will be made right. And at some point you say, but wait a minute. I can see myself in that list. I can see my lies in the list. I can see my sexual morality in the list. I can see my idolatry in the list. But I see, what do you do with that? But I see myself in the list. I see myself in Deuteronomy 16 and 17 and the injustice. 
and specifically injustice towards God. Against you and you only have I sinned. So here's the problem. God is just. All wrongs will be made right. All injustices will be dealt with. But what about the wrong and the injustice in our own hearts? And there's only two options. And I'll mention them in closing. Two options. Option number one, when you die, you stand before God in judgment and he pours out his just wrath on you. Revelation 21, 8, we just read, calls it the second death. When God pours out his wrath, cast into the lake of fire, tormented day and night forever and ever. That's option one. Option two, it's the only other option, is you run to Jesus as your propitiation. And I know that's a fancy word, and you think that guy's from Pearl. He don't know what he's talking about. Romans chapter 3 is where I'm getting it from. Romans 3.25 says this. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. Now you read the verse before, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Jesus is called the propitiation, the the wrath-bearing sacrifice. The sacrifice that appeases the wrath of God. Justice is satisfied. My injustice, my wrongs made right and settled, not because I'm in hell for them, but because Christ paid it all for me. A propitiation by His blood to to be received by faith. Everyone that puts their faith in Christ, the sins taken away, their injustices are paid for by the one that came and died in their place. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And listen to this justice language. This, this is to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just. And he is. Even though wicked sinners like us can be with him in eternity forever. Yet he's just because Jesus paid for it all. That he might be just and the justifier. The justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Praise God for his gospel and for a reminder of his gospel from Deuteronomy 16 and 17. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and the light that's here. I pray, God, that you would help us. Help us to to love it, to take the instruction here, Lord, and to see your glory. Your nature is the God of justice and and the glorious way that you, you have provided. You have provided for criminals like us to be justified. And you remain just. God, I praise you for instruction here about church discipline. Oh God, make us faithful. God, I praise you for instruction here about us being those that seek justice. God, fill us with the hearts of compassion and love and pity and to plead the cause of the poor and needy. Make us like that, Lord. And God, I pray that you would would protect us from the pride, the pride and the arrogance that makes us think that we know those standards in our own heart. God, help us to, to depend on your law, to depend on your word. God, thank you for the instruction here about governing authorities. And I pray specifically, God, that you would protect that in those who pastor and lead and govern in this church. God, protect us who are pastors from being men that are intimidated or partial or bending the truth, God. And I pray that you would protect any man that would become a pastor in the future, Lord. Raise up able men who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. 
and are not lovers of money. Raise up those kind of men, Lord, to lead this church and any that we send out for the glory of your name. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.